We're finishing our January 2022 Family Month series called Family Matters. And throughout the course of this series, we've answered a bunch of important questions. We've asked and answered, what is a family in God's economy? We've asked the question, what is a man? What is a woman? Today, we're going to build on those things, and we are going to cover a deeply theological matter that is of highest value to the modern church and we need to be prepared to engage on it. Today, we are going to talk about sexuality within God's design, and we're going to be specifically answering the question, what is human sexuality? I'm going to give you something of a a key word um, pro tip. I want you to know exactly what I'm talking about as we begin. When I say the word sex, which I will say the word sex a lot, When I say sex, I'm referring to the physical acts of sexual intimacy. When I say the term sexuality, I'm going to be referring primarily to gender in sexuality. And I'm going to reiterate that as we go, but I want to cover the I want to cover the entirety of our terminology so that as we walk through this, everyone is exactly on the same page. I also want to note to you, this is a very important, very culturally relevant subject, and I recognize this is one sermon. What my intention is to do is to put my thumbprint on a lot that will then set us up as a church to engage in really important conversations moving forward. Because I would submit to you, Bethel family, I would submit to you that as followers of Christ, we are in a very difficult position right now regarding sex and sexuality. Christians are often accused of being obsessed with sex and sexuality for all of the wrong reasons. Historically, various eras of the church throughout church history have categorized discussions regarding sex, sexuality as things like dirty, uh, for behind closed doors. Sex has even been, in places like the pulpit, a place where correction has taken place. And we don't want that stigma to perpetuate. When it comes up for too many, it's almost shame-inducing. For some of you already, it might be like, he has said sex and sexuality more times than I am already comfortable with. I don't like it. Maybe some of you have come from a church tradition or background where it's like, we don't talk about this. And it puts us at a significant disadvantage given the state of the world. Another dilemma that Christians face is that we are accused of being afraid of sex and sexuality entirely because we uphold a biblical worldview and a biblical view of when sex is appropriate, what types of sex are appropriate, and how God addresses and assigns sexuality in the Bible. We're also accused of being repressive about sex and sexuality, meaning it is culturally thought that we negatively stigmatize gender and whether or not someone can have a gender other than the one that is assigned at birth. We're further accused of stigmatizing gender roles. Who can do what in the home? Who can do what out of the home? We're accused of living in the sexual dark ages where all sex is vanilla. It is exclusively for the purpose of reproduction and not at all for the pleasure and enjoyment of men and women. It's a very difficult place that we find ourselves, and I would submit to you some of this we have brought on ourselves. At various times throughout church history, we have not talked about this subject the way that we have needed to, and it puts us now at odds with culture. We have not expressed ourselves with enough precision and church that must begin to change because right now in this exact moment, the big C global church, we are paying a steep cost. 
So Bethel Church, what I say to you this morning, whether you are in the room at Cedar Lake or joining us online, may this not be said of us. This, this cannot be said of us. Why? Why is it that we have to emphasize this? Because on the first day of, on the, in the first days of human history, specifically the very first day of humanity, the sixth day of all creation in Genesis verse 1, 20, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 36, God makes a very potent statement. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. If we go down to verse 27, it continues, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then if we jump down to verse 31, it gets even more precise. It says this, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, some of you sharp-eyed and sharp-eared students of the Bible may have just heard something you weren't expecting. And you would be correct. It's this, this description of very good is different than all of the descriptions of the previous days that came prior to it. When you read about the descriptions of the first few days of creation, God described them as only being good. But when you get to the sixth day, when man and woman, when sex and sexuality enter the creation equation, God calls it very good, and that should get our attention. God calling things good means exactly what the Bible says. It is good. But this in the English language, when it's translated directly from the Hebrew, it says something a bit more precise. It says, now this is the absolute very best that this can be. My friends, sex and sexuality, as designed by God, are very, very good. And if God calls something very good, then we must talk about it. We don't have the option of ignoring this subject. If sex and sexuality are very good in God's eyes, it means that we should not be afraid to talk about these subjects. We should not be ashamed of sex and sexuality. They are not just conversations for behind closed doors. They're not only for the bedroom. This subject is not only for that one really awkward night at youth group. It's not. This subject is not just to have the talk with your preteen or teen, but you do. This subject is not just for when your friend, your loved one, your coworker, or someone you know declares that they are same-sex attracted, changing genders, or transgendered. God says sex and sexuality are very good, and knowing that these subjects should, if not must, be normal, comfortable conversation pieces in all of our homes. We do not have the luxury to release these things anymore because, I assure you, the world is already talking about this. The world is, in fact, light years ahead of us on this particular subject. Let me tell you some things that the world is talking about. They are encouraging your young children to not have a stable but instead a fluid gender identity that is willing to change based on how they feel. They are telling your middle school teens that having sex, as long as it is consensual, is okay. They are telling your high schoolers that male-centric pornography that victimizes all parties involved is a means by which we learn to please one another sexually. 
They are telling you as a consumer of, the t- of TV and internet that this type of sexuality, this type of sexual expression, whatever this is and whatever this means, is okay. And the more you watch it and the more ratings reflect that you watch it, the more you allow yourself to become conditioned to the fact that it is in fact okay. Now, lest you think that I am inflating the truth, lest you think Pastor Stephen just likes to be a little edgy, let me share with you a couple of things, and I would like to ask you a very, very, very important question. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? It's a good question. Now, some of you are immediately thinking of Jeff Foxworthy and that TV show, right? Did you know? I think that TV show is still on. Ironically, it's hosted by John Cena now. That is a different sermon entirely. But with this question, it is important that I note to you, I pay special and specific respect to Bible scholars and apologists, Hillary Morgan Ferrer and Amy Davison, two Jesus-loving women that I have grown to deeply appreciate and respect. And they asked me this question, and in turn, I am asking you this question. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Because at the beginning of the school year in the fall of 2020, Do you know the national sex education standards that were proposed for your fifth graders? I didn't, but I got to go look them up at the prompting of these two amazing women of God. And they shared some of the NSES standards. I went and read this document. It is terrifying. For fifth graders, there are a lot of expectations. I'd like to share just a handful of them with you so you know how serious this subject is. Fifth graders are to be able to distinguish between sex assigned at birth and gender identity and explain how they may or may not differ. Your fifth grader should be able to define and explain the differences between cisgender, transgender, gender non-binary, gender expansive, and gender identity. They should be able to describe the role hormones play in the physical, social, cognitive, and emotional changes during adolescence, and the potential use of hormone blockers on young people who identify as transgendered. They should be able to explain common human development and the role of hormones, e.g. romantic and sexual feelings, masturbation, mood swings, timing of pubertal onset. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Because that's what your fifth graders are learning. And just to punch this point home, do you know how common sexual development is defined in this curriculum? It involves your adolescent and all adolescents as they come into their own sexuality being willing to experiment with their identity, their gender, and their sexual identity. And just to punch this very uncomfortable point a little bit further, do you know where the national sex education standards find their origin? I think that's an important thing for us to discern as well. They were written by a group called the Sexual Information and Education Council of the United States and have a number of very influential backers, too many of whom for me to mention right now. However, what is worth sharing is this group was founded in 1964 by Mary Calderon, the former medical director of Planned Parenthood. Do you know who funded this little adventure in sexual revolution? I think that's another good question that we should ask. Where did the seed money come from? Hugh Hefner of the pornography industry. If you're beginning to get uncomfortable, I'm glad. Because we should all be uncomfortable with everything that I have said so far. Church family, we no longer have the luxury of the past accusations, the fear, the discomfort, the stigmatizations of yesteryear 
All of those things can no longer rule the thinking of today because the world is so far ahead of us, we have a lot of work to do. I could literally fill this entire sermon with stats, studies, and statistics, all that validate this point. So I'm just going to summarize them in one cohesive statement. All of the data and statistics show that we, the church, God's people, who are the stated and called out ambassadors of God's standard, we must get our act together. And we must not be afraid to talk about sex and sexuality. So if that's true, where do we begin? We begin with what we believe. Point number one, God created sex and sexuality. Meaning, God created and assigns gender. Now, I touched on this just a little while ago in Genesis chapter 1. So let's go elsewhere. Let's see what the full counsel of God's word has to say and consider Psalm 139 together. So feel free, if you've got your Bible, to turn there. If you've got your phone or tablet, click your way there in a moment. Selected passages will be up on the screen. But Psalm 139, in the first 12 verses, we find David, who we're very familiar with throughout the Bible, having written on the character of God. He's writing on God's omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, meaning God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. That is literally a sermon series in and of itself on the character of God. So after David declares that God is all of these things, in verses 13 through 16, David makes some very significant assertions about God's creative precision in sexuality and gender. So let's read verses 13 through 16 together. They say, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in, this, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now, there is very poetic language that David uses here, and David is known for using poetic language at times. But So let, let me just punch that point a little bit. When David says, wonderfully made, what that actually means is divinely made. So God, intimately involved. When it talks about being woven together in the depths, that's poetic language for the womb, meaning God is involved, and David is affirming that God is involved in every detail of human development right down to conception. What does that mean? It means it is God who forms our inward parts, God who knits us together, God who intricately wove and designed our frames. It's God who assigns X and Y chromosomes. It's God who sees our unformed bodies. It is God who brings them to physical reality and God who assigns whether or not we become little girls or little boys who grow up to be men and women. It is God who does these things. We do not have a say in the matter. Church, if you say you believe in the God of the Bible, this is what the God of the Bible teaches. Not just once, but multiple times throughout the entirety of the canon of Scripture throughout biblical history in both Old Testament and New. If you say that you believe in the God of the Bible, what that means is you are stating that you hold to a biblical worldview. A worldview is the lens by which we view human life. A worldview is a lot like this pair of glasses. We put them on to help us see 
more clearly. Everything that we see then is filtered through them. If you say that you are a Christian, the set of lenses that you have should be directly reflective of what the Bible has to say. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is the infallible, error-free, unchanging Word of God, John 1.1. We believe the biblical teaching then that the Bible that in the Bible, that God assigns gendered sexuality, meaning God created gender distinctions. And God defines them as male and female. And I'm going to talk more about that in just a few minutes. Those gender distinctions are not just good. They're very good. Again, it is important that we recognize the distinction between good and very good. Very good means the best it possibly can be. If then, you do not believe Psalm 139, if you don't believe Genesis 1, and instead you do believe that gender is fluid and you can choose a gender identity that is different than God's design, then you do not have a biblical worldview. And you do not fully embrace the Bible as true. You cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve both ourself and God. God created and assigns Gender. This isn't, this isn't me. This isn't Bethel. This is the God of the Bible. You are making a worldview choice in how you choose to view the subjects of sex and sexuality. So I have a probing question I want to ask you. Something for you to take in and consider for yourself. Where does my worldview on sex and sexuality come from? Does it come from the Bible? Or does my worldview on sex and sexuality finds its origin in folks like the former director of Planned Parenthood and Hugh Hefner? Because I assure you, their worldview is very different. And in fact, we know something about where their worldview comes from. In the late 1700s, there was this cultural movement called the Enlightenment. Philosopher Immanuel Kant called it humanity's coming of age, really, for lack of a better phrase. And he sp this was all spurred on then by the French Revolution at the turn of the 17th to the 18th century. The big takeaway from this era for our purposes this morning is that humanity began to progressively move away from religious thinking as a societal influence. They didn't want this, the constraints of religious thinking anymore and instead embraced the concept, progressively so, called relativism. Relativism became the new standard of morality. Well, what is relativism? That's a good question. Relativism means that the concept of truth changes, that truth is subjective, that truth can change based on how you feel, that you are entitled to your own truth. And you really only have to take one look around social media, if not the world, to see how much of culture has already embraced this idea that truth can change, and in fact, does change. The new standard for morality is that there is no absolute standard for morality at all. And as a result, it is we as Christians who are seen as regressive, repressive, and a whole lot of other words that I can't say. It is we who absorb all of these negative accusations. We, friends, are now the cultural outliers. Chief among them are we outliers on sex and sexuality. Which brings me back to my question that I want to pose to you, and I really want you to consider it. Where does your worldview on sex and sexuality come from? Because if you find that you are more influenced by the world 
there is some things that you're going to want to take an objective step back and consider, like where does their worldview come from? Point number two. God created sex and sexuality. Meaning, God created sex and its design. Let's consider what the Bible says on this. In Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus reiterates this later on in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. It says, But from the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Ephesians 5.31, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Repeated throughout the Bible is this same theme. From the standpoint of Scripture, there is obvious insight then that we need to draw from this repetitious instruction. God designed sex within his design for gendered sexuality, and he did so to be between a male and a female. If I had more time, which I don't, but if I had more time, I would take you to every positive affirmation of sex that is found in the Bible. There are an alarmingly large number of those. That should be an encouragement to us, by the way. There is a lot in the Bible that speaks affirmingly about sex. But I will tell you this in no uncertain terms. God-affirmed sex is always between a male and a female. Always. But this reality, well true, is not fully complete. We need to be a bit more precise. So let me say it this way. God designed sex within his design for gendered sexuality is to be between a male husband and a female wife. It is this type of sex between a male husband and a female wife that God calls very good in Genesis 1.31. Sex then of any other type between any other parties, that is, between anyone other than a male husband and a female wife, God has specific terminology for, terminology that warrants our attention. Now, I'll stop here and just briefly say this is not the point in the sermon where we go to Leviticus chapter 18. In fact, that is the exact opposite of what I want to do. Instead, what I'd like to do is expand our thinking a little bit, and I want to go to some place very familiar to all of us here at Bethel Church in order to accomplish that. Let's go to Romans, chapter 1. We're all very familiar with Romans at Bethel, so let's go back to Romans 1, specifically verses 18 through 32. We find here Paul writing to people who know better. Paul is writing to an audience who he knows knows better and writes to them as if they know better. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says these folks knew that which was known about God, that that was known about God was plain to them, and they were ignoring it. And as a result of ignoring it, he goes a little bit further. In Romans 1, verses 21 through 23, he says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to become wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what's happening here? Essentially, God's truth, God's design, God's standards are asserting themselves in this Roman church community. 
The audience that Paul is writing about here is then suppressing what they know to be true based on their, felt, based on their feelings and based on their desires. This suppression of truth then was specifically manifesting itself in forms of sexual sin and as the verses I just read allude to, in literal idol worship. And while same-sex activity is the sin example corrected in the text itself, church, we must make no mistake here. This is not exclusively a passage that is correcting same-gendered sexual engagement. It's something very different. What it is, is a passage about willful rebellion and how it is that we correct willful rebellion of any kind against God's design and the consequences thereof. Romans has some very pointed assessments that it makes regarding sexual compromise of any kind. Romans 1.25 calls sex outside of God's design a lie and irreverent. Romans 1.26 calls sex outside of God's design dishonorable. Romans 1.26 and 27, they repeat language. And they call sex outside of God's design both unnatural and contrary. Now, this is very strong language, but it is strong language that we must understand in context. Like the willfully rebellious folks that Paul is referring to here, who are suppressing what they know to be true, it is very often culturally in various forms of sex that we, even today, continue to rebel. Use of pornography is truly, literally, the lowest of hanging fruit that we can think of where we engage in sexual rebellion all the time. And why is that? Because, by and large, we love sex. By and large, we like to think about sex. Many people grow up thinking about marriage, not because of the relationship, but because of sex. And for many people, sex is among the most sought-after and desired experiences of their life. Now, here's the thing. Let me say, I, I recognize that there are those of you in the room, those of you that are joining us online, that sex is, in fact, a struggle. And it's not just a struggle due to relational constraints. There are very real physical things that exist, things like vulvodynia, vaginismus. These are very real, very physical conditions that I know even some women in our church may face. And I recognize that when I say sex is desirable for everyone, or at least most people, that may not be the case for you. By and large, though, by and large, sex is among the most sought-after experiences for all of humanity. They want the ecstasy of it. They want the release of it. They want the tension relief that comes from it. They want the relaxing afterglow. It remains, if you look just at the numbers at the internet regarding use of pornography, it remains one of the most sought-after experiences within the human condition because of the enrapturing nature of it. This is why people want it, and they want it now, and they want to have it their way, and they compromise to get it. And as Romans talks about, they engage in the lusts of their heart, and they want things in that way as fast and as consequence-free as possible. What Paul is saying is that any sex outside of God's design is wrong. Any sex, not just the example that he uses in the text. So let me make some very potent, very pointed present tense statements. Present tense. Boyfriends and girlfriends, if you're messing around and you're getting close to the line, if you've crossed the line, if you're thinking about crossing the line, the Bible here is talking about you. 
Those of you that watch pornography, Romans 1 is talking about you. If you cheat on your boyfriend, girlfriend, fiancé, husband, or wife, the Bible here is talking about you. If you're engaged in active polygamy, you'd think polygamy has gone away. It hasn't. If you're engaged in active polygamy, Romans 1 is talking about you. Those of you that are engaged in any form of sexuality at all outside of God's design, the Bible here is talking about you. Why do I make this point? Because this is, again, another very uncomfortable point. Because we in the church tend to stigmatize things that kind of make us feel uncomfortable. We tend to talk poorly about things that we don't particularly find uh, as holy. We tend to get uncomfortable and stigmatize things and not get upset about all sexual rebellion. Sexual rebellion is the thing that we must be concerned about. And again, I want to note, these are present tense statements. Those of you that have engaged in sexual sin in the past, if you have been forgiven by the Lord, if you have asked for forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9 says you are forgiven and God is faithful to do that. I'm not talking about past tense sins. I'm talking about present tense willful disobedience because God created sex which means God created it with his design and we must utilize it. We must engage in it. We must respond in worship through it within God's design. And if you're not, what that means is sin has entered your relationship between you and God and you and someone else. And what the Bible calls us to do is repent of that sin and restore the broken relationship. When you step outside of God's design, there is tension there. And it's that last statement about relationship with God that I want to use now. I want to build on everything that we've talked about so far and drive this point home. Because it is relationship with God that really encapsulates a theology of sex and sexuality. Sex and sexuality point us to our ultimate relationship with Christ. Sex and sexuality are not about the moment. They're not about this material existence. They point us to eternity with Jesus. Remember Ephesians 5.31. I read it a little while ago. I only read verse 31. Let me add verse 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Where before I was emphasizing gender and those involved, what I want to emphasize now is that last phrase, that the marriage relationship between a male husband and a female wife is an analogy for God's love for his people. What Paul is sharing with us here is that the marriage relationship, the sexuality it requires and encompasses within God's design, the closeness of it, the intimacy of it, all of the components of it, even the human compatibility of it, they are meant to point us to the greatest relationship a follower of Jesus will ever experience. The future, sinless, unending, utterly fulfilling relationship of Christian and Christ. That is the purpose of sex and sexuality. This is what Pastor Dustin was talking about just a little while ago as well as we got to this point. Everything in human life points us to relationship with Jesus. But this is a hard narrative for us to see right now, isn't it? It's hard to not look around the world and see sex everywhere because we live in a sex-crazed culture that has made everything about sex. 
You can't even drive down the freeway now without seeing something sexually oriented on it. We're to the point now in culture where we are educating fifth graders to embrace a felt gender identity and educating them on the use of hormone blockers. Church, we do not have the luxury to not talk about this anymore. We don't have the luxury to ignore this conversation because I assure you, if you are not talking with your children about this, someone is. And it shouldn't be them. It should be us. We have to fight. We have to fight to keep the main thing the main thing. The real reality. The real reality isn't this. The real reality is the future fulfilling relationship with Jesus. In a Christian worldview, sex and sexuality point us to that relationship with God. Jesus, who was fully God, became fully man, meaning he experienced sex or excuse me, sexuality and all of its allures. He lived a single, sexless life. Jesus expressed the full extent of male sexuality without ever having engaged in the act of sex. Why? Because Jesus was Emmanuel. We just spent a whole season thinking about Emmanuel, didn't we? What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us, right? With us in relationship. God with us in relationship, though, to do what? Jesus tells us in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer, he says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I have more there, but I'm going to stop right there. We're going to go on to another verse. Let's go up to Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. And through him, Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's keep going. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. It says this, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. John chapter 17, Ephesians, Colossians, they are all talking about a relationship with Christ. If we were to spend more time on John 17, I would talk about how John 17 is a part of a dialogue between chapter 13 and verse 17. Smack dab in the middle, we get this word, abide. Abide in me and I in you. What Jesus is saying is, make your home in me. I want to make my home in you. This is all about relationship. Jesus and Paul are saying that Jesus came to do one thing, to restore a broken relationship between God and man that was broken by sinful rebellion in Genesis 3. Sex and sexuality are a picture of the restoration of that relationship. They are not in and of themselves the ultimate reality. They point to the ultimate relationship and the ultimate fulfillment between God and man for all eternity. This is the goal and the prize that Philippians 3.14 is telling us to press on toward. This is why God takes this subject so seriously. This is why God has very specific, very precise language that he uses to discuss it. Sex within God's design Sexuality expressed within God's design is a reflection of God's ultimate plan to restore humanity's relationship with him. Any distortion of God's design 
earns the unpleasant designations of Romans 1, 25 through 27. Not just the sin we don't like. Not just the sin that we find personally reprehensible. Not just the sexual sin that someone else is doing. Any willful rebellion against God's design earns us those designations. We need to operate within God's design. So in summary, God created sex. God created sexuality. And how we express these two things are reflective of our worldview. Now, I would be a poor pastor of counseling if I did not give you some things to do. Anybody that's ever sat with me in an office or been alone with me for 30 seconds (laughs) knows that I don't talk to you unless we do something with our conversation. So I've got a couple of things. First, reframe your thinking about sex and sexuality. Begin to think, talk, and act with sex and sexuality as pointing to the ultimate relational fulfillment every Christian will one day have with Jesus. The more you think about sex and express your sexuality or God-assigned gender as God does, the more that every relationship that you are in will start to become more Christ-like. And it's honestly likely to help you move away from relationships and people that you should not be spending copious amounts of time with. The more we are informed by our theology, the more we are going to live out our faith. And the less we will find ourselves discouraged by what the world says is the most important things that we know are temporary in the here and now. This is truly just another way of saying keep the main thing the main thing. If you are a Christian, if you believe that Jesus came and died for your sins, it must change the way that you think and live. We do not have the luxury of having a foot in both worlds. It leads us to compromise. It leads you, quite frankly, to constant existential crisis where you are constantly divided, constantly double-minded, and a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. We need to be consistent in how we apply God's truth. So we must reframe how we think and how we talk about sex and sexuality, and in every area of our lives, keep Jesus the focus and the lens by which we view all things. Number two, make your Christian home sex and sexuality positive. Create the space to talk about it, because in God's design, sex and sexuality are very good. And if you haven't framed it this way, If sex is a taboo subject in your home, that's the very first thing that's got to change. Moms and dads, I have a word to you. This starts with you. It starts with you reframing how you think and act. It is not the church's job to talk with your kids about sex. It's our job to come alongside you and agree and compliment with that which you have talked with them about sex. It is not Pastor Andrew, Pastor Foster, it is not Samantha, it is not Bill, it's not Scott's job to talk with your kids about sex. It's yours. And you have to take that job seriously. So, lest you think I'm going to give you a bunch of responsibility with no equipping, I have a book for you to recommend. I'm going to recommend a book to you. 
I mentioned Hillary Morgan Freire and Amy Davison. They wrote a book called Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality. Open up a tab now and buy it. It's a very good book. And in fact, if you got an email earlier in the week that had a bunch of recommended resources, one of those resources was actually a summary of the Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality. It will be very, 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 very helpful to you. Do you need another very? You want the book. It's a great starting place. Number three, do not stigmatize sexuality. Don't stigmatize the things you don't like. God has a design for sex. Do not allow your personal standard of holiness or personal sexual preferences to dictate how you talk about sex. Why? First, because sex and sexuality point to a greater relationship. And if you are only emphasizing the things that you think are right or you feel are taboo or best, you're not actually conveying the whole point. You are emphasizing an activity at the expense of the relationship. Always point to the relationship. As long as people are within God's design, male husband, female wife, and they are engaging in honoring sexual activity, it is within their parameters to do that. Don't stigmatize sex you don't happen to like or deem wise. Be honoring. Honoring is the key word. And the second thing related to that, not everyone can express their desired sexuality. And the last thing that you want to do is heap insult, injury, or shame onto someone who cannot express themselves. None of those things are honorable. And you might lose a gospel opportunity. You might lose an opportunity to talk about the true things of life. Do not speak ill of sexual things you don't like or don't agree with. Point to something better. Fourthly, and this is, there's no notes for this one. I want to say a word to those of you who uh, have alternative sexual attraction. Because I know you're here. We know you're here, and we are glad that you are here. Amen. On Thursday, I, I was working on this and thinking about it and, and trying to literally write this point. Everything was done but, but this point. And, and my wife was like, she, she didn't say, what's the matter with you? But I just said, I'm trying to figure out what to say here because I'm not walking away from the pulpit until I say something. We're glad you're here. And I know that today, I can't, I can't touch on everything. I didn't get to, okay, so what do I do? Where's my place? I didn't get there. But what I did and what I've tried to do is set the stage for we as a church to have healthy, grounded, theological conversations now where we all, all of us, understand God's design in the Bible. And in understanding God's design in the Bible, we're not going to talk exclusively about sex and sexuality, we're going to talk about what it points to. We're going to talk about as the church, the future church who will worship God one day together in heaven, we're going to talk about those things. And in the midst of that, nuance our way into some of those finer, more detailed, more precise conversations. But if that's you this morning, we want you to know this is a place for you and we look forward to growing with you and are going to do the best we possibly can to partner with you in the process of becoming more like Christ because that's what we're all doing.
Further, I encourage you to remember Jesus. Jesus lived a sexless life and still fully expressed himself. Jesus lived a life that pointed towards the goal, the prize, and the ultimate fulfillment of our relationship. And I hope that we as a church are able to do the same. Finally, it is my hope and prayer now that as a whole church, we are more refined in our biblical framework and worldview and that we can grow in readiness to engage in some of these more personal discussions because I assure you, it will be necessary.